Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Black holes, wormholes, and time travel. But first up, here's the news. Data 61 is the latest blow in the Australian government's war on science. The National Information and Communications Technology Australia Research Organisation, NICTA, was an initiative of the Howard Liberal National Coalition Government from 2002. It's being abolished by the Abbott Liberal National Coalition Government. NICTA was set up to back Australia's ability. Now it's set to sack Australia's ability. The Abbott Government has shut it down by cutting all its funding and announced that NICTA will have a handful of the staff and projects folded into the Digital Productivity Division of the shrinking CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. CSIRO has lost over 20% of its staff and over $115 million in funding in the last federal budget, and several hundred staff members in the previous year. The NICTA researchers within the CSIRO Division of Digital Productivity are now called Data61, as an homage to Area 51. Well, no, I only wish it were that inspiring a reason. It's not a reference to a 4K video streaming protocol, or a theoretical limit on data bandwidth, or in fact anything as 21st century as a vague reference to whatever digital productivity is actually supposed to mean. No, it's merely a reference to the internationally recognised telephone country code 61 that you use when dialing Australia from overseas which was introduced for Australia in 1964. Apparently, digital productivity is all about dialing your rotary telephone correctly. The Scientific Research Organisation is now led by Lawrence Marshall, appointed by the Prime Minister. He's an expat businessman who, despite his PhD in nuclear physics and 20 patents, has entertaining beliefs in pseudoscience. This new water-divining CEO, Dr Larry Marshall, has appointed a fellow expat businessman, Mr Adrian Turner, as the chief of the Data61 Digital Productivity Division. Despite the fact that NICTA isn't dead yet, it's still got 12 months of funding left to spend. He's a businessman experienced with agriculture and mining, rather than an engineer or scientist, which could have made the job interview rather awkward. 
Apparently, it's his track record in convincing venture capitalists to invest in startup businesses that got him the job in a research organisation that isn't a business. All the money CSIRO makes goes straight into federal government revenue. Like the half a billion dollars they've made so far from inventing Wi-Fi. We don't yet know if Adrian Turner also has entertaining pseudoscientific beliefs. It's predicted that at least 200 of the 617 NICTA staff will lose their jobs in the 12 months before the money runs out. NICTA has also been fostering 300 PhD students whose future is uncertain. CSIRO has had yet another government appointment in the form of a new chairman of the board. Guess what? It's a businessman with no experience in science. David Thurdy was previously CEO of Telstra, Australia's landline telephone monopoly, where he was paid over $27 million over his last three years, which he has publicly stated was indefensible. He's currently also chairman of the New South Wales State Government Initiative Jobs for New South Wales, which, as well as a second job for him to fall back on when there's more budget cuts at CSIRO, may be useful in helping the hundreds of scientists losing their jobs at NICTA and CSIRO. At least there'll be a familiar face when the big boss who's responsible for firing you at work and the man in charge of helping you search for a new job are the same guy. He's also chairman of Basketball Australia. Unfortunately, the Australian Technology Park at Redfern that has housed NICTA and served as a national startup technology hub for the last 13 years is planned to be sold by the New South Wales Liberal National Coalition State Government to help pay their debts. The billionaire co-founders of the software company Atlassian are trying to find a way to buy the site outright and keep it as a hub of technology for startup businesses, instead of being converted into just another big Sydney residential site, as the New South Wales government has announced for the Powerhouse Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. Thus far, the New South Wales government would rather sell both sites to real estate developers for apartments. Maybe CSRO Chief Dr Larry Marshall can douse for water and save the day. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Grant Lewis is a professor of astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at Sydney University. In part two of the interview, we speak about black holes, wormholes and time travel. I began by asking him, what is our current understanding of black holes? Our theories are as confused and messy as they always seem to be. So just to put a little bit of context here, so the, the, the black hole solution wasn't derived by Einstein himself, but by Carl Schwarzschild in 1916 while he was fighting on the Eastern Front, part of World War I. He died later that year. So this notion of an object that's completely collapsed, so you take an object like a star and you squeeze it and you squeeze it and squeeze it until it can take the squeeze and what completely collapses down to a point where you get immense gravitational fields, in itself is a bizarre object. 
So for a long time, you know, up until around the 1960s, they were a theoretical curiosity, and, and even Einstein struggled to get to grips with this notion of completely collapsed objects. And then in the 1960s, people looked out into the universe and started to see these very bright galaxies, these quasars as they're now known, and radio galaxies, etc. And it's been realized that these are powered by the very same black holes. Right? We have these immense gravitational poles, heated material, shining brighter than 100 billion stars. So some, they went from theoretical curiosity to being everywhere in the universe. And people are trying to still understand their impact. What has their impact been on the growth of structure in the universe? What's the impact been on uh, even our own Milky Way galaxy? To this question of, um, do, they, do, they, do they lead somewhere? If you fall into a black hole, it, does it lead to another universe? If you fall into a black hole, is that it? Is that the end of the story? I mean, in the simplest black holes, they're a, they're a one-way street. But the work by people like uh, Stephen Hawking about information in the universe and dropping things into black holes shows that, again, we, we barely understand them. And it all leads back to this integration of quantum mechanics and gravity to really understand black holes. I still think we're a little way off from truly understanding how a black hole operates and what's really going on at the centre. So did the theorists think we could build wormholes without the gravity of a black hole, without the singularity to crush us? There are potential ways of building wormholes where you can have rings of, of this negative energy again that allow you to shortcut travel from one place in the universe to another place in the universe. Again, lots and lots of theoretical ideas. The question of can we physically realize any of these structures is, is still a long way off. But there's nothing in the theory that says that we couldn't build them. It's all about the physically getting negative energy and building it into the right structure. And then here's the curly one on that. Because relativity says that time doesn't go at the same rate everywhere, if you go into a wormhole, are you going to come out at the same time you went in? Ah, so time machines. One of the things I love about relativity is that it does not stop you having time machines. There's nothing in there to say that time machines are impossible. Now, there are lots of reasons why people think, again, that while the theory can have them, that a physical working time machine is unlikely to occur, but there's nothing to stop you. And I, again, I, I, would, I would love to be around in a few hundred years where people are still working through these equations and now have the link of quantum mechanics and relativity. And maybe somebody makes that realization that a time machine is possible in some sense of the word. But at the moment, to me, the door is open because there's nothing to, to stop it inside the theory. So if somebody starting their studies wanted to research this area, what should they do if they're leaving high school and they're about to go to uni? What courses should they select? Well, there's a, a few key facts. Of course, a physics uh, background is very, very important. Einstein's general theory of relativity is built upon so many different steps that people need to know. You need to know your classical mechanics and your electromagnetism, etc. And here our students don't do general relativity until their fourth year, until their honours year. They do special relativity in their second year. There's no getting away from the fact that it's quite mathematical. 
it is not as bad as some people like to make out. It's not that it's impossible to do the mathematics. The mathematics can become a little bit horrendous. But there's been great strides made in computational relativity, whereby you translate the equations of relativity onto computers and you, you run simulated collisions of stars, etc. So that area itself is growing to be a very big one. But yes, it's physics, the maths, and the computer science are the key, key aspects. It's been in the news recently again about this EM drive that NASA briefly tested, which it's a microwaves in a cavity that's supposedly inertialist drive. Do you know anything about it? I do. I have heard some of the stories. I haven't looked in detail at the actual experiments themselves, but I have read some articles by people who have. The entire issue here is that we are dealing with very delicate experiments where people are picking up absolutely minute amount of forces. And if you were going to say that that force is due to some unknown physical effect or some quantum effect or whatever people want to call on, you better be damn sure that you have ruled out all of the possible normal everyday physical things, a draft, electrical currents here, resistance there. There was the experiment a few years ago where people thought they had seen neutrinos traveling faster than the speed of light, loose cable at the end of the day, okay? You'd need to make sure you've ruled out all of those before you can go public and say that we have found something that really is potentially earth-shattering. At the moment, these experiments haven't reached that bar yet. If the experiments start appearing in the literature and people can replicate them, then we know that they're onto something. But often what happens is experiments appear in the literature and people can't replicate them. And I'm old enough to remember the entire cold fusion issue of a great hoo-ha in the news that disappears when everyone else tries to redo the experiments. So I'm, I'm going to wait and see. I, I, I love to have an open mind. I love the fact that people are doing experiments, even experiments which are right at the hairy edge. But people still need to remember that got to be grounded in physics and science at the end of the day. So one of the key things, I think, to remember is that it's 100 years, right? 100 years that we've had general relativity. That 100 years has already turned up so many strange things which have become realized in our universe, this, the expanding universe, black holes. We have this open question of wormholes and warp drives, and we know that relativity is not complete. It does make me wonder what the next 100 years is going to give us. And, you know, scientific progress is one of those fields where it's very hard to make predictions, but I'm hoping that in 100 years that the world will be a very different place because of what we find hidden in these theories. Well, Geraint Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. That was Geraint Lewis, Professor of Astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney. And from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair... We have 3D printers designed especially for schools. Fletcher Thompson is one of the three directors of Me3D, producing 3D printers in Wollongong. I began by asking him, when did he start his journey to selling 3D printers specially designed for schools? Well, we, I guess it kind of started years and years ago. Uh, I started getting interested in 3D printing back when I first graduated and started working as an engineer in 2008. And Matt 
Connolly. I, well, I knew Matt and Leanne, who are the other directors of the company. Since uh, well, more than 10 years ago now, we were we built race cars together at, at Wollongong Uni, which is great fun. But yeah, uh, once we'd been out and working for a while, I was still friends with Matt, and uh, I knew he was interested in 3D printing as well. Finally, a couple of years ago, I actually wound up working back at the University of Wollongong with 3D printers, very high-end, like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of 3D printers. And out of that, I knew well, Matt was really, really excited. And he, he, he sort of approached me one day and said, hey, let's, let's make a 3D printer. And I've been, I've been wanting to for ages because I you know, used all these fancy ones at work, but then had nothing at home. So yeah, I guess we, we got started properly back in November 2013, thereabouts, sort of October, November. Started throwing a few design concepts together, fiddled around with a lot of stuff, did some sneaky laser cutting in at work. <laughs> and yeah, then then sort of about six, seven months later, we had our, our first printer ready to sell. So. Did you immediately think that you were going to start a business? No, it, was, it wasn't originally a sort of a business prospect. Like the first, I mean, the, the first sort of... That sort of three months of just was was just kind of seriously me and Matt just hanging around in the shed, bastardizing bits off his printer bot and sketching things up and trying to figure out what we wanted, you know what what sort of electronics we were going to use, what sort of platform and all that sort of stuff. We knew we were really keen on open source, open source development, the whole idea of open source hardware, and you know we were sort of treating it like that, like that kind of a project. But we hadn't really. I guess considered doing it as a business until we we're already quite a long way down the line. And that's when we sort of really started to get serious about how we were designing it, how we were going to build the thing, where we were going to build it, all that sort of thing. And I guess it was really at that point that we that we decided to stop making a printer for ourselves and actually start making a printer that someone would need. So um, yeah, I guess that's that's like when we decided, yeah, okay, I guess tinkerers like us, they want to build their own printers anyway, right? So. Yeah, so instead we changed the whole design around and, and sort of got really stuck in it. That that was sorry, I guess that was the that was November. We'd, we'd already been playing around for a while at that point, but um, yeah. So how is your three D printer different to other ones? To be honest, in some ways it's not really all that different. It is a basic fused deposition modeling printer, but realistically, at that at that point where we where we decided, yeah, we we're going to do this business and thought, you know, who actually really needs uh, needs cheap, simple printers, um, and schools and classrooms came up as the as like our, our number one thing. So that's 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 led the whole design of its inset. So we took it out of the box and said no ABS and no hidden build tray and no enclosure. So the original design that would come up had this whole completely enclosed thing. It was going to be like sub micron precision. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> So basically the design of ours is just nice and simple. It works with a fairly restricted range of materials in that you, you can't use high temperature, high CTE plastics like ABS and nylon, but ultimately it's not too much different from anything else except that it's made in Australia and it's probably cheaper than a lot of the stuff out there on the market. So what are you printing with that's a lower temperature? I, I'm assuming the lower temperature is so it's safer? Uh, a mixture of factors. Um, not so much because it's safer, but just because that's um, that's the that's the requirement of the material. So we use mostly PLA and uh, polylactic acid derivatives, but there's other low-temperature plastics that we work with as well, like thermal polyurethanes, like uh, Polyflex and NinjaFlex and that sort of thing. So I mean, we're not 
terribly restricted with the materials, but I guess, I mean, one of the reasons we decided no ABS in the first place was, you know, the, the issue with the smell and fuming and everything that you can get, which is not particularly tenable in a classroom where you maybe are eventually going to have 10 or 20 of these printers running side by side. I mean, we, we're already seeing that with labs at universities and in makerspaces where you've got a lot of these printers all sitting around and running and all at the same time and it gets like almost unbearable to sit in the same room as it. So, you know, I mean, that, that was kind of why we went away from that in the first place. And then that's, that's just it. We've, we've got, we're now happily working with a whole range of materials to cover most of our needs and pretty much none of it needs to melt above 250 degrees and don't really need a heated build tray for it, so. And as you say, it's out of the box. Yep. So what was part of the decision for that? Well, we were having a look at it early on and trying to figure out, like, again, when we were doing that sort of assessment of who actually needs our printers and, and why, we were considering doing like a kit-based type thing or, or you know, doing a, an offering of both a kit for for the sort of makers and kit bashes and people who want to hack stuff up and doing a, like, just a ready to go. And again, it kind of comes down to the teachers. So if you're, if you're looking to set up a, a printing lab, you don't want to be spent, like, you don't want to have to spend as much as like you know thousands of dollars again on top of the investment in the actual printers to get the things set up by someone who has to come in and professionally install them and they're stuck there they're not like you, you can't move them no one's confident in what to do so like we kind of intentionally tried to roll into the design the least amount of maintenance and the least amount of setup effort that we could so i mean you literally get it out of the box there's a handle on top <laughs> we kind of joke for a long time that our major contribution to 3D printing was that we put a handle on it. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's a whole other thing. But, I mean, you, you don't want to have to reconfigure and recalibrate at the start of every class. So, we, you know, we've built in tapping calibration every time, like for every print run. You don't want to have to continuously do printer maintenance. So we just tried to make everything as sort of simple and straightforward as possible and accessible. And in the event that you do need to do that sort of maintenance work, then you know, it, a lot of it's either user serviceable parts or quickly replaceable. So I mean, we tried to you know, cover as many bases as we can, I guess. And you're based in Wollongong? That's right. We are based in Wollongong. We actually, we started off in, in Matley and Shed <laughs> as, as much as possible. But um, if anything, we've actually sort of wound up integrating in with the University of Wollongong quite a lot. We have a seat in the UOW I accelerate program in at the innovation campus, which has been great so far. Because if if anything, we're we're a bit we you know we're idealistic tinkering engineering types and maybe fell short on the business side. Leanne is definitely the business brains in the company. Every time Matt and I start scratching our chins and going, yeah, what about if we ah and. Yeah, no, and she tells us to get back on task. So she is our, our whiz-bang finance business extraordinaire, but uh, at the same time, you know, one person doesn't run the entire company. So it's been really helpful, particularly for Matt and I, to learn more of the sort of economics and, and business side of things. Uh, just to, you know, learn what it really takes to build up a company that's actually, you know, sort of how we can, you know, a, a, a useful entity that we're not just sort of going, yay, let's make 3D printers. And, but, you know, we can actually go and make 3D printers and, and get them to where they need to be. So it's been really handy. Yeah. 
And where would people find you online? Uh, you can find us at me3d.com.au. You can find us on Facebook, Me3D. <laughs> Just type in Me3D, I think it's the first thing that comes up. But yes, if you find us at me3d.com.au, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter. I think we are on Instagram now. Oh my God, we're on Instagram. Yeah, uh, through the usual channels. My affair has been great fun. It has been a bit taxing. You might notice I'm a little gravelly voice, but uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been great. And it's been great being here with Maker's Place as well. We, we have a good, good, long, happy working relationship with Maker's Place, and I hope that continues a long way into the future. So, Well, Fletcher, thank you very much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was Fletcher Thompson of Me3D. In countless ways, directly and indirectly, your product here serves the nation and its citizens, plays a vital role in helping every American to achieve a better way of life, enables or helps him to enjoy healthful recreation, have well-trained, obedient pets, make friends, have leisure time for travel, grow bigger crops, Get real smoking satisfaction. Strengthen our national defense. Keep romance from fading away. Enjoy smoother shades. Live in a more comfortable home. Take off ugly fat. Achieve success. Thus the... Your name here. Dory. A story of refusal to admit defeat. A story of gallant men and women who kept faith and who molded the universal dream of a better life into reality through your product here. The living symbol of our national heritage. A story in the great tradition of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the other heroic figures who, like your company president here, dedicated their lives to humanity, and whose contributions to the betterment of mankind will never be forgotten. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends and follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two XX in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for photos, videos and links from this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering 
next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Redshirt by Jonathan Colton. You can buy his songs on jonathancolton.com. You hold up one hand, everyone waits until we can move again. The burden of command stands you up straight, something to prove again. Blood in your eyes, screams on the radio, they say get out of there. We aren't finished yet, you tell them to grow a pair. They said this air would be breathable, get in, get out again. Set this is-